According to His promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the Scriptures. Once again, we are in the book of Philippians, Philippians chapter 1 this evening. Philippians chapter 1, although we uh, will take a few moments for questions and answers, and they will not necessarily be in Philippians 1, but uh, once the questions are done, we will be in Philippians. God is spirit. He must be worshipped in spirit and in truth. So in preparation for the study of the Word of God, let's take a moment for silent prayer, asking the Father to set aside our distractions and to humble us under the authority of His eternal truth. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, we come before you tonight thankful for your truth, rejoicing that you are the God of truth and that your spirit, the spirit of truth, indwells each one of us. Father, we thank you that the word of God does not depend upon how smart we are to uh, figure these things out or learn these things. It's not an issue of our intelligence. It's an issue of your faithfulness. I thank you for the Holy Spirit who so faithfully opens the eyes of our understanding, who feeds us, Father, and uh, we call upon that faithfulness once again tonight. To, uh, to shine forth and to bless us. We thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right. Before we take our first question, I had one that came in by email. Uh, this was a Bill Cully question, actually. came in by email. And in his readings of um, Norm Geisler talking about deism and some of the other views, uh, part of the prolegomena of systematic theology, but uh, it says, as you know, deists hold to a belief that the Creator is not interacting with the world. In other words, the clockmaker who just created the universe, wound it up, and let it go. Um, this has gotten me thinking. Of course, we know that God is active personally in our lives and in the physical earth itself as He holds all things together. That's Colossians 1.17. I think we also have Hebrews uh, chapter 1 we can point to in some other passages. My question is this, as it concerns the weather, Weather conditions, are they typically a wound clock given right conditions for storm, rain, hail, hurricanes, etc.? I understand God sometimes uses natural disasters to warn an area of the, of the planet, but does He create every storm, or does He just permit storms to happen considering the proper conditions? So, yeah, that's an excellent question, and I think it's, it, it goes beyond that. The sovereignty of God, he, he controls everything. Does that mean, you know, He count the very hairs of our head are numbered, and he, you know, he knows every star by name and all these things. So, does he sovereignly direct every single rainstorm when it starts, when it stops, and so forth? Or is some of it just the natural phenomena of the creation, and uh, and uh, and that? So, I think um, Scripture is clear that that uh, there, you know a sparrow doesn't fall to the earth apart from the sovereignty of God. So. That to me, that's comprehensive. That's that's every every bird on the planet, every animal. God God maintains that kind of sovereignty, and and yet, even with that kind of sovereignty over earthquakes, rain, wind, storms, birds, everything, He still unleashes humanity with volition, and so we make our choices, and and, and we're not controlled in those choices. I believe. I believe that the the determinism of uh, of, of Calvinism. Uh, goes beyond the point and, and fails to uh, make its own case. So um, anyway, you think about disease, think about sickness. Sickness is sometimes divine discipline. But then sometimes it's just the consequences of being a fallen creature in a fallen world. 
you know? So uh, when I get my migraines, is it because I'm in reversionism and God is disciplining me? Or is it undeserved suffering? Or is it just uh, it's a fallen body in a fallen world? Is it uh, Gulf War syndrome because of the experimental chemicals they gave me when I went to Saudi Arabia? Or what is it? Why do I get the uh, the, the migraines that I get? So um, a lot of that's above our pay grade and we don't know the exact answer. Um, but I do think, though, that we would be wrong, like Job's accusers, uh, to just point to something and say, ha, you're under the discipline of God. You know, now a lot of, a lot of stuff just happens because of the fallen world we live in as the rain falls on the just and the unjust. So appreciate that. All right, so that was the, uh, the old business, so to speak, the uh, question that arrived early by means of email. So now we're ready for some additional questions. If uh, you've got other things on your mind tonight, microphone runner is ready to go. So all right, we'll uh, get that going and we'll hand you the microphone and you can have your own follow-up. How about that? All right, um, this question is in regards to uh, Matthew seven twenty-two and uh, 23. Where uh, obviously you can you see what it says. Uh, yeah. So, so my question, uh, where it says, uh, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, do we not prophesy in your name, and in your name not cast out demons, and in your name perform any miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Mm-hmm. So my question basically is a salvational question. Um, I was always taught that. If you don't know, for the lack of a better word, the mechanics of salvation, or if you don't know how to become saved, then even though you think you're saved, are you truly saved? Oh, yeah, I would, I would say not. I mean, I think the Scripture, how will they believe if they haven't heard, and how will they hear if no one is sent? And, you know, clearly to be saved, you have to trust in Christ. And in order to trust in Christ, you have to know that. <laughs> I mean, you have to be convicted, convinced, by the way. That's why patho is a great verb that, that precedes pastuo. You have to be convicted by the Holy Spirit and convinced that the offer of eternal life in Jesus Christ is yours. It's your offer. It is available to you, and then you accept it or you reject it, you trust it, or you trust in something else. So I think, yeah, there, no one gets saved on accident, and no one gets saved believing in nothing. And and faith in faith is not faith in Christ. And you know, there's a lot of faith that's faith in 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 a lie. You know, Muslims are believing the Quran, and and you know, Mormons are believing the Book of Mormon. Just trusting something doesn't make it true. And so, if you trust in a lie, your faith is 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 empty. So, does that answer what you were what you were getting at there? Uh, this yeah. crowd here, by the way, the Great White Throne Judgment. Yeah, they think that there's been some kind of mistake. <laughs> you know, like, excuse me, uh, I shouldn't be here. I, you know, and the fact is, by the time you stand at the great white throne, you've already been in hell, right? You've already died. You've already gone to hell. And then at the end of the millennium, you were resurrected for the resurrection of judgment. So there's, there's almost nobody standing at the great white throne that hasn't already been to hell. And so the idea now that they're going to be saying, oh, Lord, Lord, you know, uh, I, we did this, we did that, you know, clearly we should deserve something, and why, why did you send us to hell? Um, you know, so they have no argument. And the issue is, depart from me, I never knew you. The issue is not what they've done or haven't done, it's they had, don't have a, a relationship with Jesus Christ. I guess uh, maybe a follow-up to that would be, um, we take into consideration those who add uh, to the finished works of Christ on the cross, you know, those who say, I'm saved uh, by faith uh, in Christ, and 
you know, add whatever, you know, mm -hmm. the numerous things that people like to add to salvation. Mm -hmm. um, can we then say that those people don't really understand how to become saved or, you know, like um, well, faith in baptism, right, or faith right. in tongues. Believe or, in Jesus and, and walk the aisle right. or believe in Jesus and get baptized or walk down front and confess Christ. Right. Because unless you believe with your heart and confess with your mouth, blah, 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 you know, they'll, they'll try to quote a verse and make somebody walk an aisle or make someone get wet or, or something else. Now, and then, I think in those cases, though, I think a lot, I think most of those folks are truly saved because, you know, they trusted in Christ. And then in that split second, before they could get up and walk the aisle or go get wet or whatever else, they're already recipients of eternal life. And so I think in the grace of God that he does that and he allows for new believers then to overcome a, a, a poor gospel preaching <laughs> and to place their faith in Christ and to get saved. I think a lot of Roman Catholics get personally saved because these Bibles are laying around, not doing anything with them, you know, but uh, and in spite of their priesthood, in spite of their church, in spite of the all the liturgy that is having them do penance and Hail Marys and Lent and all this other stuff, they pick up a Bible and they start reading. And like Martin Luther, he's, he reads Galatians and goes, wow, you know, we're justified by faith. <laughs> and so I suspect that that also happens in, in a lot of cases. And then it just becomes a matter of the spiritual life from the, from then on out. Mm -hmm. and, okay. All, right. All right, excellent question. Let's bring a microphone across the aisle over here, Chris. Yes, you do. Yes, you do. I, and the benefit, by the way, the benefit to the microphone is because there's people that are not here tonight, and they'll be, they'll be listening to the MP3 file off the website, and we want them to hear the question and the answer. Otherwise, when they listen, when they podcast it and listen, it, it sounds. It used to sound like half a telephone conversation until we started moving the microphone around and getting the questions also recorded as well as the answers. So okay, earlier I'd asked you about dying. Uh -huh. Is it for when when um, the unbelievers die, do they go to hell forever, forever meaning never ending? Mm -hmm. And you said yes. So why do some of the scriptures talk about um, if you... If you're not saved, if you don't believe, you shall surely die. Uh -huh. So dying is opposed to... Yeah, there's the first death, there's the second death, physical death, where, whereby the, the believers go to heaven and unbelievers go to hell. Um, but that is forever. And, and there's different um, portions of that forever judgment, like I said, because hell itself is going to be emptied out at the great white throne and then cast into the lake of fire. So that... I might have confused things there in the answer because of, of the two steps on that. But no, the unbeliever who dies and goes to hell, they are never getting out of hell there except to go to the lake of fire. They're never going to get to heaven. They don't get a second chance to get saved. And they never have an end of their torment. They never have an end whereby they cease to exist. The, the, the suffering is an eternal suffering as the scripture describes it. So they don't die. No, they do die. That's how they go to hell. Physical well, death. I mean, after that, they don't literally die in hell. Oh, that's the second you know, death. Burn that's out right. and die. Yeah, I think we're using the terms in slightly different ways, but yeah, it's it's called the second death, and that's an eternal death. And they keep on dying, they keep on being corrupted, they keep on suffering, and that never stops. That's called the second death, and then that's also described in uh, in Revelation chapter twenty. I think the uh, this is the second death, the lake of fire. And um, if, if their names are not found written in the book of life, then uh, that's what they're cast into, is that, that lake of fire. So, and and it's, it's, this passage also, by the way, can prove 
that because uh, when they do get cast into the lake of fire, the uh, Antichrist and the false prophet are still there. We see that in Revelation 20 and verse 10. It says, The devil who deceived them was thrown in the lake of fire and brimstone, where, notice, is that me doing that? The beast and the false prophet are also, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So that never stops. That never stops. Thank you. Uh-huh. You're welcome. All right, I think we got time for one more. Did you have one? Was that a raised hand? Okay. 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 So, do you know? <laughs> do I know? What um, there's recorded about Christ at the temple when he says, "I had to be about my father's business." When he his parents took off and missed him. Right. Right. And then, then, then him at uh, the wedding in Canaan. Whenever he turns the water into wine. Uh huh. And then, pretty much, whenever his ministry comes about. So, for a lot of years, you don't hear anything about his growing up. His uh, yeah, we get virtually nothing. In fact, we get nothing at all from the time he's a two-year-old fleeing to Egypt and yeah. coming back to the time he's 12 years old in the temple. Yeah. There's nothing in there in between. There's legends and, and Jewish traditions and, and false gospels written about childhood miracles and stuff like that, but nothing in the Bible. And then... Um, well, I'm sure he did something because his mom knew to tell the servants. Do what I, don't, I don't think so because when he turns the water to wine... We're specifically told that that was the first of his miracles. And it says so that the turning, that this was the beginning of his miracles and his disciples began to believe in him at that time. And so that was after his baptism, that was after his public ministry. I don't believe he did any childhood miracles because of that verse that said the water to wine was the first of his miracles. wonder how she knew to... Oh well. Okay. Yeah, there, okay. there's a protoevangelum. There's there's some other uh, infancy narratives. There's some other apocryphal books that that some Catholics believe. There's some that even creep into the Quran. The Quran even adapts some of those that talk about how Jesus was preaching in the in the uh, uh, in, in the manger, <laughs> and and he preaches to Mary in order to communicate Muslim doctrine. Whereas a babe in, a babe in the manger, he says, "Oh, I'm not the son of God," you know. Uh, which is a highly suspicious text, yeah. So is there any Josephus or any of the external, like, uh, historians that has anything about his life? Okay. About his miracles or about his life? No, his life. His life prior to... Um, no. Okay. No, all the secular historians, uh, the, the Roman historians and the pagans that wrote about him, and the Jewish unbelievers that wrote about him, just wrote about his adult life and ministry, nothing about his childhood. Uh-huh. All righty, well then, that's it for this week. So uh, if I didn't get to you, I apologize. We'll get to you next week. How about that? I promise. Actually, I better get to you next week because next week is my last Wednesday for a while. So yeah, if I don't get to your question tonight or next week, you're going to have to wait. So, all right. Philippians. We are in the Thanksgiving and prayer section, which is verses 3 through 11. I think this is the last time I'll show you this slide. Uh, Verses 3 through 11, the Thanksgiving and prayer section that centers on he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. And we're not quite to that verse yet, but that is verse 6 there that we see. All right, then we'll deal with verses 12 through 18. My circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. I'm really eager to get to that section because this is the section that uh, convicts all of us and tells me and you and everybody else, uh, quit, quit whining, okay? Don't uh, quit grumbling about your circumstances. God has you just where he wants you. 
And so um, start to orient towards the fact that he is using your circumstances for the greater progress of the gospel, for his good pleasure. And if he didn't want you there, he wouldn't have put you there. So he's got a purpose for it. God is, uh, does nothing for no reason. And uh, we can glean uh, a lot of good principles there from those verses. And then the chapter concludes with uh, verses 19 through 30 and the great uh, statement to live as Christ and to die as gain. And we're going to learn how to live this out. And this is what it means to be a living sacrifice, that, uh, that it, we are living as unto the Lord, living as Christ, but also w- ready to lay down our life. There's no greater love, and, and we're willing to do that if Christ wants us to do that. To die is gain. We're not scared of death. And if, if by life or by death we can glorify Jesus Christ, then His will be done and uh, aspects there. So we'll have some good applications there. And I tell you, I'll I'll be excited just to get through chapter 1 if the Lord delays long enough to get us through chapter 1. And and there's some great things in chapters 2 and following as well. You know, the kenosis from chapter 2, I'm really excited. But you know, if uh, if the trumpet sounds before we get that far, uh, then at least we get some good meat here in in chapter 1. So we've been uh, talking about uh, really... um, We've covered three points of study at this point. We're wrapping up point three tonight. Um, But we did see under point one, following the salutation, Paul typically offers thanksgiving on behalf of the recipients of his epistles. And this is normative. All right, we see it in Romans, 1 Corinthians, but not 2, Ephesians, uh, not Galatians, but uh, Philippians, Colossians. 1 Thessalonians, Philemon, 2 Timothy, in most of Paul's epistles, he begins with a thanksgiving on behalf of his recipients, the readers of his letter, which is interesting to me because, um, in fact, I spent much of an afternoon um, uh, sometime back looking at um, people trying to twist verse 3, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. And in, in the Greek, it, it is possible to turn that around, that I thank my God in all your remembrance of me. <laughs> I thank my God in every remembrance that you have of me. All right? And you can. I mean, you, it, is a, it is a fair debate to discuss whether a genitive is objective or subjective, and, and experts will, will try to hash it out. But um, I think the answer is pretty simple, though, when you see... Uh, in all of Paul's other correspondence that he does start with a thankfulness on behalf of his readers uh, of why he remembers them and why he thinks kindly of them and why he appreciates them and and what happened when he was with them and uh, things of that nature. So seeing as that's the universal case everywhere else Paul writes, to me that ends the debate. That solves uh, all this uh, linguistic... um, I think some people are too clever by half trying to prove that a an objective genitive is really a subjective genitive and, and they're going to draw a line in the sand and, and die on that hill. In any way, Paul will typically offer thanksgiving on behalf of the recipients of, of his epistles and I don't believe Philippians is any exception to that rule. And then beyond that, in most of those cases then, he follows up the thanksgiving with some additional intercession. And we're learning that thanksgiving and remembrance comes first as primary prayer practices. And then beyond that, we have particular petitions. We have particular uh, requests that we make known. And so uh, the follow-ups there, uh, including Romans, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, First Thess, and Philemon, in those cases, those initial thanksgiving prayers 
had follow-up intercessory, intercessory prayers. And uh, here in this chapter, we get that in verse 6 and then verses 9 and following, 9 through 11, where he says, This I pray that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment. And so he's not content to merely thank God for the past completed action. He is wanting to build on that. He wants to, for them to excel still more. He wants them to grow still more. And as thankful as any pastor is of any flock, uh, as, as thankful as I am of this flock, for example, uh, I would hate for the members of this flock to quit growing tonight. Uh, I want you to grow more tonight and Sunday and next, next week and so on and so forth. We can always excel still more. And that's uh, what we'll see when we get into those intercessory prayers. We uh, saw on Sunday that Thanksgiving and remembrance are primary prayer practices. And uh, this comes in uh, verse 3, the primary verbs of verse 3, I thank my God, that's the Eucharisteo, in all my remembrance of you, in every remembrance. And uh, so there's the activity of thanking and the activity of remembering. And I I don't think you can separate them. I think we want to keep them linked the way this verse links them together. In other words, the less mindful you are, the less you remember God's grace, the less thankful you're going to be. Because you're not choosing to be mindful of the grace of God that that has been poured out upon you. And so naturally, I think, the consequences of not being in remembrance of, of God and His work and His faithfulness is that you gradually start to ignore it, start to forget it, start to act like it's never happened, start to act like uh, you know, the opposite is just true, that God has never blessed you. Well, because you just, you've spent all this time not thinking about it, not dwelling on it, not remembering it, not praising Him for it, not talking to Him about it. And so uh, clearly then it's reflected in a lack of, a, of an appreciation. And so uh, I'm not going to go back and reteach this, but Eucharisteo, Eucharistia, Eucharistos, this is... Uh, uh, even uh, the, there's a technical term for communion service. Sometimes it's called the Eucharist, right? Sometimes when you take communion, it's called the Eucharist, which is the Thanksgiving uh, remembrance that we are remembering our Savior and in, in His finished work on the cross. Uh, but these are the terms that all speak of thankfulness, and, and I like to call it gratitude, only because gratitude and gratis, and it comes from the same, in in the English language anyway, gratis is connected to grace in a way that thanks is is not, okay? Thanks comes from some Germanic thing, or it comes from some other language that, uh, remember English is very mongrel, uh, adapting from Germanic sources and, and uh, Scandinavian sources and other sources. So, uh, but if we go with gratitude, then we can keep it all within the the Greco-Roman Western uh, tradition. Anyway, I call it grace-minded gratitude. Grace-minded gratitude. And if you if you or someone you know, or if you ever encounter a kind of a selfishness that's um, severed from grace a kind of a thankfulness that's not a, a, a gratitude for grace, then it's not Eucharisteo. It's not the biblical definition of thankfulness. And I would prefer to, to give it a different label. I, I you know, don't call it thankfulness. Call it uh, you know, selfish appreciation, okay? Whatever it is. I mean, you can be selfishly appreciative. You know, most pets are, are selfishly appreciative when you feed them or, or whatever, okay? Toddlers, children... Uh, other immature, you know, husbands or whatever the case may be. You can be selfishly appreciative 
and not be oriented to grace in any capacity at all. And so to me, I, th- I find it useful to create a separate term and to think of it separately that true thankfulness, biblically speaking, is, uh, true thankfulness has got to be a grace appreciation. Because charis is in the middle of every grace expression, every thanksgiving expression that we have here in this, uh, in this study. These terms are most often employed in a prayer context. You know, how thankful are you when you're not personally giving thanks to the one that, that is due the thanksgiving, you know, um, for whoever it is that's provided the benefit, whoever it is that's supplied the grace. You want to thank them. You want to thank them personally, directly, and in prayer we have that privilege. And so all day, every day, is there a day that we shouldn't wake up and thank God for our salvation? <laughs> thank God for our eternal life. Thank God for all that we are and all that we have every single day. And uh, the fact that I woke up, some people don't wake up this morning. The fact that I got out of bed, some people can't get out of bed. All this that God's provided, I had clothes to put on, I had food to eat, and all these grace provisions that point us in the really the upper 1% of wealth on the planet today, as far as that goes. Anyway, most of the Thanksgiving terms in the New Testament are in prayer context. The second verb in this verse is the verb for uh, remembering. And uh, the vocabulary here in the mimneskamai, menea, menemonuo, in that. Um, the, in Greek, it's not a silent M, it's a mene, uh, mene, you know, menea, menea. It's not like the, the English word mnemonics, which does have a silent M. Um, anyway, I, I, I'm goofy when I pronounce my mnemonics devices and whatnot. But, um, anyway, we have the blessing to remember not just past stuff. We, we are presently mindful and futurely mindful as well. It's a past, present, future mindfulness. We have the blessing because we're students of prophecy. We're students of scripture. That there's things that haven't happened yet, like the millennium and the rapture and the great white throne and, and eternity future, the fullness of times. How about that? The new heavens and new earth. You and I are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And we should be mindful of that future. And so it's like remembering something that hasn't happened yet. Okay? And it's, this is something an unbeliever can't do. This is something that, that is one of the oxymorons of, of Christianity that maybe, you know, it's like when we get richer by giving. You know, the, the unbeliever doesn't get that. How, how, is it, <laughs> how is it that we can give and, and, and it's more blessed to give than to receive and, and things like that? How can we remember something that hasn't happened yet? Well, because we have that certainty through the, the truth of God's Word. And we can remember the, uh, the trumpet. We can remember the uh, mansions that he's gone to prepare. We can remember that in my Father's house are many dwelling places. We can remember those future things because he's told them to us and promised them to us. Anyway, this, these uh, are the terms for volitional, volitional, mind you, we choose to remember or we choose not to remember. And that's, that's our accountability. We're going to learn through every chapter of Philippians that God holds us accountable for how we think. It says, have this attitude in yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus. And if you don't have the attitude God tells you to have, if you don't think the way God tells you to think, then there will be some adjustment procedures on the way. (laughs) God is very good. God is very good at, at the attitude adjustments that are necessary. And when he tells us how to think and we choose not to, that's that's an issue for our remedial correction. And we'll, we'll learn about that. But it's a volitional issue to remember the things that we're supposed to remember and to not dwell on the things we're not supposed to dwell on. 
And by the time we get to Philippians chapter 4, we're going to have a whole list. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is honorable, let your mind dwell on these things, we're told. And then whatever else doesn't qualify on that list, why are you remembering it? Why are you dredging it up? Why are you dwelling on guilt? Why are you dwelling on bitterness? Why are you, why are you choosing to remember the things that you were told not to remember? You see, wow, see, I'm just preaching to myself right now. You all can go ahead and leave. This is uh, pretty personal. All right, so that's what we're dealing with. Point three then, we ran out of time on Sunday. I'm going to get right back to it here tonight. The New Testament view of remembering is grounded in the Old Testament view of remembering. This is an aspect where, yeah, we can do the Greek studies, we can do the language work, we can, we can do that, but there is such an impact that the Old Testament has on the New Testament doctrine that we better get grounded there first because truly the, the New Testament usage is governed by the Old Testament foundation. And uh, the Old Testament view of remembering particularly because God is the subject of remembering more often than anybody else in the Old Testament. God himself remembers, and God himself chooses not to remember. And we have these applications, like Genesis 9.15, God remembered Noah, right? Or God remembered Abraham, or God remembered Israel. God remembered his covenant. He says in Genesis 9 that when he sees the rainbow, he's going to remember the covenant he's making there with Noah. And, and the, the whole point being is that God is the omniscient God. God knows everything. He's always known everything. God doesn't accumulate knowledge like we do where we have to build upon things that we know, we add to it things we didn't know quite yet, and then we can, add, we can know more tomorrow than we know today. That's a sequential view of accumulating knowledge. We do that as finite creatures. God does not. God has absolute knowledge, absolute existence, absolute omniscience, and He always has. It's not possible for God to know less tomorrow than He knows today. And so God can't forget. Not in terms of just knowledge, factual information that He knows. You see, He doesn't forget. He chooses not to remember. And that's a, that's a significant difference. He chooses not to remember. So... Um, Leviticus 26 is another example there where he remembers the covenant. And this is, that's the chapter where he talks about divine discipline. That's, that's the chapter. Leviticus 26 is the cycles of discipline upon a nation. It's a recipe for how to destroy your nation. Okay? What happens when a nation is removed from human history? It doesn't happen overnight. There were cycles of discipline along the way. There were warnings. There were opportunities for repentance. And then for a Gentile nation, the final cycle is destruction. Israel, however, has eternal promises. So even if they are destroyed, if they're carried off into captivity like they were in Babylon, they have a restoration promised and they can come back from a captivity. But the United States of America has no such eternal covenant. We can be destroyed tomorrow. And there is no promise that we'll come back the next, you know, any time beyond that. Psalm 105 and verse 8 let me reread this one. I know we read it on Sunday, but I want to read it again. Because this, to me, is one of the great central passages of the fullness of time that speaks of what we're looking forward to in the new heavens and new earth, the dispensation after the millennium. Remember, it's after the millennium, but it's before eternity future. It's in the new heavens and on the new earth. And it's the uh, he has remembered his covenant forever. 
the word which he commanded to a thousand generations. So it's infinite in its duration, it's forever, it never ends, but it's finite in its recipients. That is, the, the number of people with which he makes this unconditional covenant is limited to a thousand generations. And it's very specific. In uh, Psalm, in Chronicles, and in Deuteronomy, we have three different places in the Old Testament where very literally God makes promises to a thousand generations. And so uh, I read these and I, and I accept these as true. I accept these as literal. And, and I'm saddened to say that a lot of pastors don't. That they, uh, they don't accept these on a literal basis. They, they dismiss it as figurative language. And these are good men. Men that, that normally have a literal hermeneutic. Normally they preach uh, on a very literal basis. But for whatever reason they, they reach this and, and Schofield didn't teach it so they don't teach it but they decide to get poetic at this point and they say well you know it's allegory it's oh well it's just figurative. Well, it's, you know, it's, like, it's like a cattle on a thousand hills. It is not like a cattle on a thousand hills. The only, the only comparable thing is the word thousand in the two examples but they are quite clearly the, the poetry of Cattle on a Thousand Hills is entirely separate from the narrative we have right here. This is a literal promise. It is God literally remembering a literal covenant, literally forever, a literal word which He literally commanded to a literal thousand generations. And you cannot treat this like you treat the Cattle on a Thousand Hills. All right? Anyway. And so um, the millennium does not fulfill this. The millennium is only a thousand years. The fullness of time is a thousand generations. That's after the millennium. That's with no more death, no more pain, the first things having passed away. That's a thousand generations of those who love Jesus Christ. That's the kingdom of His blessing that is promised throughout the Old Testament. So, wanted to share that with you as well. Uh, Psalm 105, verse 8. Like I say, there's First Chronicles that goes with that, there's Deuteronomy that goes with that. And if you have more questions on that, we can... Um, we can get you a Plan of God reader, the ABC reader, uh, the Plan of God, and uh, point you to what you want to read there. All right, on my way to Jeremiah 31, let me just take one side trip to Revelation 20. That's on the way to Jeremiah, right? Revelation chapter 20. And I'm going to bless, uh, bless you here with something I'm teaching in Ukraine a couple weeks from now. Um, when we teach uh, the millennium, I like to teach the millennium uh, I like to teach the millennium, especially after somebody else has already taught the millennium, uh, because I suspect that maybe there was an emphasis there that, that was not taught that I like to teach, uh, and that specifically is the failure of the millennium, uh, what the millennium does not do, what the millennium does not achieve. And, and also, uh, because I think too many pastors make such a big deal out of the millennium that it, it puts an emphasis where it, uh, an emphasis where it shouldn't be, Okay. And so then I get to come in and challenge these seminary students and say, hey, think about this. Uh, consider, all right? And so um, when I read Revelation chapter 20, are you with me? Revelation 20, I want to look at this. And you can do this with a friend, with a neighbor, with an enemy, with anybody. You can bring them to these, these verses and say, look at these verses right here, okay? So because when you search the Old Testament, for the, the phrase thousand years, it's nowhere. It, it does not appear. There's no thousand year expression in the, in the Old Testament. The kingdom is an eternal kingdom. The, uh, the, the covenant with Abraham, is, is it an eternal covenant or a, a millennial covenant? It's an eternal covenant. The covenant with David is not a millennial covenant, it's an eternal covenant. 
The promises are always eternal. So what's the big deal about the millennium? Where did that come? It comes from here. It comes from Revelation chapter 20. And specifically, you'll notice verse 2, when when the angel comes down in verse 1, he's got a chain and and he lays hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who's the devil, and Satan bound him for a thousand years. There it is. It's our first reference to a thousand years in verse 2. And then verse 3, he threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him so that he would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. After these things, after these things, notice, he must be released for a short time. But he doesn't get released until after these things. He's released after the millennium. All right? Then verse 4, I saw thrones and they sat on them. By the way, write your name in there because you're on one of those thrones. Sitting on them. And judgment was given to them. Again, write your name in there. That's us. Uh, And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus. These are the tribulational saints, the martyrs in the tribulation. And you'll notice, that, you know, they didn't take the mark of the beast. They didn't worship the beast. And they come to life and they reign with Christ for a thousand years. There it is again. All right, so it's mentioned in verse 2. It's mentioned in verse 3. It's mentioned in verse 4. Wow, must be a big deal. Gets mentioned a lot. Uh, verse 5, the rest of the dead do not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. So verse 5, thousand years. Okay, so uh, we've got the resurrection of, of the living, resurrection of the dead. We've got um, different things here, but they're a thousand years apart. Verse 6, blessed and holy is the one who is a part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. There it is again, a thousand years. Okay. By the way, don't write your name in there. Okay. In fact, put, put not me in, okay? <laughs> Because you and I, we reign forever. You don't want a thousand years. That's just a temp, temp job. Okay? That's, like a, that's like day labor. A, a thousand years is like a day. A day is like a thousand years. These people that, that reign for a thousand years, that is only day labor. That is only provisional. The, the millennial kingdom is an occupational government. It is a military occupation. It was conquered at Armageddon and Jesus reigns in a military occupation with a rod of iron for a thousand years. And his administrators of this provisional government are the resurrected tribulational martyrs. Don't write your name in there. The people that are, that are going to reign with, for him for a thousand years are the resurrected tribulational martyrs. Their blessing is to rule in this provisional government for one day, okay? A thousand years. We reign forever. We're the bride of Christ. We shall always be with the Lord. We will judge the angels. We will judge the world. We will reign forever and ever, not just for a thousand years. So don't write your name in verse 6. All right. Now, um, and this, this to me I think is also key because a provisional government, a military occupational government specifically is designed to work itself out of a job. You come in, you conquer, you're ruling a people that's not you. You want to go home and you can do that when you set up a stable government here and then you leave. Okay? I've done that. I've, I was part of the in 1990, 1991, part of the, the invasion of Kuwait. And in fact, in the 411th MP Company, yesterday was 411, in the 411th MP Company, uh, we were the first MPs to, uh, to enter Kuwait City. And, uh, and we were martial law, we were, we were the law in, uh, in Kuwait City. Until such time as what? We handed the sovereignty back to the Kuwaitis and we came home. So think about the millennium. It is a conquered 
territory, the fallen world of earth, okay? Satan is bound, Antichrist is slain, all this is done, and Jesus rules with a rod of iron. That is a, a, a not a popular reign, okay? But it is a forceful reign. All right, so it never appeared anywhere in the Old Testament, but it appears over and over again here in this chapter, okay? Verse 2, 1,000 years. Verse 3, 1,000 years. Verse 4, 1,000 years. Verse 5, 1,000 years. Verse 6, 1,000 years. You see that? Are you looking at it? All right, now, so this has got to be a pretty big deal if he's going to mention it this many times. And then I get to verse 7. When the 1,000 years are completed. Wow. Where did that go? <laughs> I mean, just like that, it's over. Already? Man, that, that flew by. Okay? The older I get, things it happens like that. Things fly by faster and faster. Um, when you're young, everything goes slower and you, it just takes forever. But when you're older, everything zips by faster than anything. And, and, but there's a thousand years. It's gone. And so when I give the exam to, to the students at uh, Word of God Bible College in, in Kiev, Ukraine, um, it's a bit of a trick question, but, but they're well taught and they're well prepped and so everyone gets it real well. But the whole point is, Tell me where the millennium can be found in the book of Revelation. And the answer is it's in between verse 6 and verse 7, right there in, in, in this chapter. Because everything in verses 2 through 6 is leading up to the thousand years, talking about what is going to happen, what is going to happen, what's going to last a thousand know, And then you get to verse 7 and it's over already. And so if you really want to be technical about it, the millennium is in between verse 6 and verse 7. Right there, just put you know, put your name in there, and, and that's the millennium because we'll be with the Lord in the millennium, and uh, and that's that's where it is. Okay, and so I start to yeah to teach it that like this, and start to say you know what, we make a big deal out of something that sh- we should not make a big deal out of, because the millennium is not the big deal that the fullness of time is. After the millennium, after the thousand years, what happens for a thousand generations? And, and let me tell you, a thousand generations is a much bigger deal than a thousand years. Particularly when those generations are living so long. Okay, We're not talking about a generation of fruit flies, we're talking about a generation of people for whom the, it says the youth will die at a hundred. Think about those days of Noah. Think about when they're living 400 years, 500 years, Noah was 600 years and became the father of Ham, Shem, and Japheth. Think about life on that scale where the youth dies at 100, where somebody in their 90s, right? Someone that's uh, about to turn 87 this month, or someone, you know, is still considered a youth. The youth will die at 100. That's pretty amazing. By the way, that's in the millennium when the youth dies at 100. There is no death on the new earth. But so think about a generation like that, a generation where you get to be about 100, you start to look around and say, well, I probably should settle down and get married now. Okay. You know, and uh, that's the generation we're talking about. A thousand of those generations. Wow, wow, how long is that going to take? Are we talking 100,000 years? What are we talking about? We're talking some amazing things. So if God is looking forward to those thousand generations, if he is looking forward to the dispensation suitable to the fullness of the times, that is the summing up of all things in Christ, we should be looking forward to that as well. That's our blessing. All right, so now that's the Revelation trip. Okay, back to Jeremiah 31 then. And we'll see uh, what God chooses to remember, what God chooses to not remember. We taught this uh, not that long ago in our Jeremiah roller coaster. 
We've done 50 chapters now, two more to go. If you were with us uh, 16 weeks ago, I guess, then we were in Jeremiah 34. No, Jeremiah 31. Jeremiah 31, 19 weeks ago. And he says, I will make a new covenant. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord. When I will, when I will. Okay, days are coming. Verse 31, 31. When I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah. Is that with the church? <laughs> okay, no. So the house of Israel, with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them up out of the land of Egypt. What was that? You know, Passover, Sinai, the Mosaic Law. Okay. This week, by the way, Monday night was, was the beginning of Passover. Um, so he says, not like that. Okay, now was that made with the church? Why do I think this is going to be made with the church? It's not. All right. When I brought them up out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, <laughs> okay, yeah, you can't break an unconditional covenant, but you can break a conditional covenant, which Mosaic Law was. Although I was husband of them, declares the Lord. Does that have anything to do with the church? Nothing whatsoever. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. On their heart I will write it. I will be their God. They shall be my people. They will not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord. You know, under Mosaic law, they needed the priests and Levites to teach them. Won't, need to, won't be needing that in the, in the millennium. All right. For they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and their sin I will remember no more. God chooses to never again remember their sin. And that's His sovereign choice. And so this is all the, the Old Testament grounding of what zakar is all about. The, the ver- Hebrew verb zakar, Z-A-K-A-R, number 2142, it's used 233 times in the Old Testament. So it's not like it's a, it's a small emphasis or it's a short word study. That's, there's a lot there in, in what you remember and don't remember and what God remembers and chooses not to remember and so forth. It's the Zachar family. If you, in fact, it's, it's the name Zachariah, the prophet Zachariah. Yahweh remembers. Okay? All the Zachar names, there's several of them in the Old Testament. It's, uh, it's a great family of words. It's a great Old Testament word study. And it leads us to another Zechariah. This is a New Testament Zechariah. The Zacharias of Luke chapter 1. So let's uh, take a look at that. Luke chapter 1. And, uh, you know, you might think that, uh, well, you know, it's been 400 years since any prophets have come and 400 years since any books of the Bible have been written and 400 years since uh, any kind of evidence that God is with His people. Um, you might think that maybe God's forgotten. No, God has not forgotten. And in fact, He selects quite an elderly uh, uh, priest by the name of Yahweh remembers, <laughs> okay, by the name of Zacharias and uh, with a wife named Elizabeth, and he chooses, he says, all right, you guys, I'm going to start working through you. And you're going to have a baby. You're going to give birth to John the Baptist. You're going to give birth to the, to the forerunner of the Christ. And so in uh, Luke chapter 1, we have this story here of, uh, of how Zacharias uh, encountered the angel and he's in his priestly service. Anyway, there's, there's a lot. It's a long, long chapter. 
And because of Zacharias' lack of faith, he, he loses his voice, right? And then he and Elizabeth have uh, one of the most amazing marriages ever because she gets to dominate every conversation for the nine months of the pregnancy. <laughs> but then the baby gets born and there's the debate about what to name the boy and Zacharias puts his foot down and says his name is John. Okay? And uh, that's kind of a neat story there too. And they, they, You don't have any family members named John. How can you do this? You know... Um, Anyway, he writes out on the tablet, his name is John, and then he gets his voice back. So uh, some amazing things here. And this is the kind of thing, by the way, this kind of thing of losing your voice and writing the notes and then getting your voice back, that's very Ezekiel, that's very Jeremiah or Isaiah or one of these Old Testament prophets. You know, and now he gets his voice back. He's already this old guy having a baby and his old wife having her baby, you know, having the same baby. And they're... Uh, uh, but this is so Old Testament on this, right? And then he gets his voice back, and what does he get to do? He gets to preach an amazing sermon. And what he gets to preach here, um, we read about, and, and and they're just amazed, okay? So verse 64, at once his mouth was open and his tongue was loosed, he began to speak in praise of God. And fear came of, on all those living around them, and all these matters are being talked about in the hill country of Judea. And all who heard him kept them in mind, saying, What will this child turn out to be? For the hand of the Lord will certainly be with him. And then his father Zacharias, filled with the Holy Spirit, prophesied. Say, prophesied. Have they had a prophet since Malachi? 400 silent years. But now a prophecy is uttered. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for He has visited us and accomplished redemption for His people. This is the Redeemer of Israel. Or this is the, not the Redeemer, but the forerunner of the Redeemer. This is the, the herald of the Christ. And has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David, His servant, as He spoke by the mouth of His holy prophets from of old, salvation from our enemies, from the hand of all who hate us, to show mercy toward our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. There's your zakir, okay? In Hebrew, it's zakir. In Greek, it's mimneskamai, uh, okay? Uh, to remember his uh, holy covenant. And see, all of this doctrine, all of this application, Zechariah had the perspective to appreciate all of it. I think most of the folks would have been happy just to you know, have the political deliverance in verse 71. You know, get rid of Rome. Save us from the politics, you know, from, you know, we want to be a free people, uh, you know. But the idea of the mercy towards the fathers, to remember the covenant, the oath which he swore to Abram our father, and, well, all that spiritual sin stuff, we don't, we don't care about any of that. We just want, get rid of Rome. Give us some freedom. I think that's what Judas was all about and what Simon the Zealot was all about and many of Christ's disciples earthly-minded. Even after the resurrection, you read Acts chapter 1, the disciples were like, okay, Jesus, now can we have a kingdom? Okay? Anyway, there's memory. And he's testifying to this, to remember his holy covenant. That's Psalm 105 again. God remembers it. God has never once forgotten it. The commandment which he commanded to a thousand generations. So it's the uh, verse 74, to grant us that we being rescued from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear. 
is not just a rescue, it's now a kingdom where we get to serve Him without fear and holiness and righteousness before Him all our days, to have their sin removed and forgiven. So that in holiness and righteousness before Him all our days. Can you imagine a promise where your sin is gone? Israel had that promise. Their sin I will remember no more. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare His ways. That's why when He appeared, He said, Repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. To give to His people the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sins. Because of the tender mercy of our God, with which the sunrise from on high will visit us to shine upon those who sit in darkness in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. There is so much doctrine in this psalm. And an Old Testament believer who had a handle on all of this is who God selected to um, give birth to the the forerunner. All right, so the child continued to grow and become strong in spirit. He lived in the deserts until the day of his public appearance to Israel. Well, that's what we're dealing with there. All right. Um, let's get a clue. Let's get a look now at prayer. Let's get back to Philippians. Let's see what this prayer is about. He said, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. Then what? Always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all. Now there's a lot here to unpack, but I'm not going to do it. I'm going to save it for chapter 4, okay? But I'll just tease you with it here. More we developed in chapter 4 related to prayer. In fact, Philippians 4, 6, you got four different words all in the same verse dealing with prayer. Be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving let your requests be made known unto God. Four different prayer, uh, prayer imperatives are right there in one verse. But we have a lot of that is here and, and we could, I mean we can at least unpack a little bit of it and, and, and tease a little bit of it. But we want to see, here it is seen, that what, what are prayers? Prayers are joyful things. I'm, I put things in quote so that we understand it's a, it's a noun, it's a person, place, or thing. It's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's an abstract concept, but it's more than an abstract concept. It is a thing. And it is an abiding thing. I believe it is an eternal thing, which is mind-boggling. I could be wrong. I, I, I got till chapter four to figure it out. I want to. I want to teach it appropriately. But I think prayers. What are the prayers? And and do prayers expire, or do prayers? Because prayers are in fact a tangible memorial that go up to the God who can never forget. Now it's on that basis I think prayers are eternal. Um, we, we are engaged in something that has, and that shouldn't surprise us, anything we do that bears fruit abides forever. That we finite creatures are blessed to be able to produce eternal results. It's staggering to me. All right, prayers are things, and they are joyful things. That's why if we have a joy deficiency, we need to ramp up our prayer life, okay? Because uh, a more engaged prayer life increases our joy capacity. Prayers are joyful things, as it says here. Off, um, I thank God in my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy. Right? If, you, if, you're not, if you're not offering your prayer with joy, I think with joy, that's the, that's the, that's the wine in our offering. 
That's, you know, so many of the Old Testament offerings had a, a drink of wine poured out with them as well. To me, what is that but joy? If you're not offering joy in your prayers, then why are you praying? Do you believe He's hearing you? Do you believe He's answering? Do you believe He cares? Do you believe He's making provision? You bet I'm going to have joy. <laughs> you know, I have joy because the act of praying reminds me, puts me in remembrance that I'm not the one solving all these things. I have joy because I know that I have the remembrance of the God who's making this provision. Of course I'm offering up my prayer with joy. All right, so prayers are joyful things, and these things are generated by our doing. When we think about prayer, we have to consider the noun and the verb. Prayer is a thing. I'm going to say a prayer in three minutes when I end this class. I'm going to say a prayer, which means I'm going to be praying, and you're going to be praying with me, and we're all going to be accomplishing a verb as we pray. But as we pray, we are going to be creating something, producing something. What is that? A prayer. And so it is a verb that we do, but it is also a result. It is also a product of our activity. It is a thing. And we find that this thing, which is uttered here on earth, actually is manifested as well in heaven. The incense that fills the the censers that the angels are carrying before the Father's throne. All right? So these are things, and they are joyful things generated by our doing. And in, I want to be able to expand upon this, not tonight, not Sunday, but by the time we get to chapter 4, I want us to have a better recognition of the privilege we have in prayer. Because it's not unlike God who spoke and the universe came into existence. God who spoke, God who says, let there be, and there is. We can say, let there be, in prayer. And many times there is, because in prayer, God the Father makes that provision. So we say, let there be. Now, we we don't sovereignly bring it into existence, right? We're not like God who says, let there be light, and there was light. And I don't demand, let there be, and then, you know, let there be a winning lottery ticket in my hand. It's not there, okay? Okay or cheeseburger or whatever. I mean, I can, I can think small. I can, if I'm hungry, I just let there be cheeseburger. We don't have that kind of sovereignty. But I can pray, Father. Um, There's a nine-year-old boy right now struggling with brain cancer, and I want his parents to have the peace of Christ that surpasses the understanding. I want his parents, his siblings, he's got a little brother. I want his uh, grandparents. I want, I want the whole family to... Let this time, if he's going to die tonight, let, or I don't know how soon it's going to be, but they don't expect he's going to make it. So in the coming days or weeks or months or whatever, whatever time he has left, I want this time to be so intimate, so special. I want them to come together in a way they'll never forget. It's going to shape them for years to come. And so I can pray that and let this be. And, I, and I'm, there, are, there are consequences to those prayers. They're not done when, see, when my words stop, noise stops, right? The vibrations only echo so far. we got good acoustics in this room. But even so, when I stop talking and when the vibrations die down, those words are gone, aren't they? But prayers are not. Words are gone, but prayers are not. And they abide. 
and the possession of having a prayer, the possession of offering a prayer, because we're offering these prayers. There's language of sacrifice here. Always offering prayer. It is an offering. It is a sweet-smelling savor before the throne of grace. With joy am I every prayer for you all. So we'll talk about that and uh, deal with that on Sunday. And we're going to talk about the basis for the prayer. The basis for the prayer is his fellowship. The fellowship uh, participation in the gospel from the first day until now. What's that about? Well, we'll deal with that on Sunday. Lord willing and rapture pending. Father, I thank you for tonight. I thank you for this class. I thank you for the time. And we've reached the end of our time, Father, but I want to thank you for your grace and the provision. Father, I thank you for the blessings of prayer that we can join in the activity together. We can achieve the results together, Father, the manifestation of our prayers uh, as very real, tangible, spiritual things in the heavenly places in Christ. I thank you for, I pray that we become so um, diligent in our prayers, Father, that you have to assign extra extra angels to to carry these before you. And uh, Father, uh, I want it to be full-time employment. <laughs> I want to keep a constant uh, uh, bucket brigade of, of angels constantly carrying prayer after prayer after prayer before your throne of grace. And uh, teach us these, these principles. Open our eyes to the potential that is there uh, on this on this basis, and it's it's so freely available. Any of us can join in such ministries, and uh, I just rejoice in these things, Father. Thank you for opening our eyes to them. I thank you, Father, for brothers and sisters that are hungry for truth. I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name, Amen.